You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 71 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. Today, we are interviewing our friend and colleague, Dr. Madeline Mackey. Dr. Mackey just started a position as an assistant professor at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. She studies paleo-Indian big game hunting and lifeways, as well as hand sprays. We all met Dr. Mackey at the University of Wyoming, go figure, where she dealt with our numerous shenanigans. We are super excited to have her on the show today. Dr. Mackey, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty well, and I'm pretty happy to be talking to three of you again. It's been some time, that's for sure. Probably since essays in Albuquerque, I, I imagine. I saw Connor a few weeks ago, well, like a month ago, in the field at Le- mm-hmm. Le- Pro. So Yeah, I saw you, I guess last was on Zoom at like one of my lecture things, or someone's lecture. Yeah, that sounds right. And then essays before that. Oh no, Laramie. Well, I do. I do email you to bug you about radiocarbon data quite frequently. Yeah, we've exchanged some emails, and I've exchanged texts with all of you since then too. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so. <true. laughs> that is fair. So, uh, Connor, David, you guys met Doc Mackey before I did. So, how did how did that go? I was wondering this earlier. I was going to ask you. Do you remember when we first met? I know it was at Wyoming, but like, or did we meet at the Paleo Odyssey? And I just didn't know you. No, uh, it was at Wyoming for sure. I remember Connor and I met in the kitchen of Rich Adams' house mm-hmm, about nice. probably like two weeks before the semester started. Yep. So, and I probably met you, David, like two weeks later could be my guess, but I don't remember yeah. specifically. Yeah. Or did, were you yeah. in the field with Brian? That's right. I met you with Brian and that was my first summer in Wyoming, I think. Yeah. Um, first full summer in Wyoming out at uh, Shirley Basin site. Yeah, and Brian Schroeder was on episode one, some number. <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah, we I remember uh, meeting you there and was like, okay, cool. This is what a grad student looks like at the University of Wyoming. Because I think you were just starting there. Yeah, I can't remember if I that was before I started or if that was the after my first year. Yeah, I, I can't remember was, either. Yeah, I can't remember. Because I started in 2012, fall of 2012. Okay. Maybe it was like, so. yeah, it was just like, it was one of those things that like, I think that's the first experience I had with someone who was like in the program. So it was, it was cool to see. And I was scared. I was very scared. Yeah. I was very scared of you at first because you like <laughs> knew everything about like everything. And like, people were like, just ask Maddie. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I try not to be scary. <laughs> and then we all like actually meet you and yeah. understand that you're a wonderful human being and we love you a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> I try yeah, to, not to like, have resting okay. angry face, but I do. It's a problem. <laughs> I don't, if I think about you, I don't really get that, that vibe. If I remember correctly, I do remember you like always had a party at your house or you were always at someone's party and then you were like, Hey, let's go play Mario Kart at my house. And I do recall that. And it was a great time. It would be. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think we're going to throw it back real far right now. So what kind of got got you into archaeology as like a kid, a teenager? So I archaeology was like one of the first, like even when I was a really little kid, was one of the careers I always said I wanted to do. And when I look back on it, the other careers that I thought about like 
seriously when like you know up through high school were often pretty related to anthropology although at the time i didn't realize that archaeology was part of anthropology until about my senior year of high school but i thought about you know cultural anthropology and then forensics for a while was definitely on the forensic anthropology csi bones etc band kid train like many people and i think a lot of it just came back comes down to when you know when i was a kid a lot of times family activities were museums or vacations were you know included going to museums or going to archaeology sites i think a lot of it probably prompted by my mom and that just kind of always piqued an interest of mine in those time periods and what the past was like and by the time i was about 16 i had decided that archaeology is what i wanted to do so i entered college knowing that archaeology was what major I wanted. And I registered like foreign anthropology major from the beginning, Awesome, um, which is not all that common, really. Yeah. No. Oh, believe me, we've done this enough to know it's not, not that common <laughs> at <laughs> no, all. Like, Usually it's, I didn't know this was a job. And then I took yeah. a class and then I switched majors. Everyone has like an interest in it, but like they don't know that it's a, like a legitimate thing you can do in college. Yeah. And I had in my, I think it was like my senior year of high school, they made us do the like, like do a presentation on the career you want. And I, that was when I figured out that archaeology is part of anthropology. And I did a presentation on anthropology. Nice. Which most of the other kids were probably like, what is this? Like, <laughs> but yeah. I was excited. I did my, I think junior year research paper in English class on human evolution in Tennessee. And it went over great. But I think I knew that was anthropology at that point. I don't remember, but yeah. We were all nerds is what I'm getting to, but. Oh yeah. I was also terrified of talking to anyone. So that, that is strange. Yep. That was me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I was, I was the kid in fourth grade who had the paleontologist. I had a little like a trifold thing that I made that I was like, how to be a paint paleontologist and had pictures and all this kind of stuff. So that was. That was I, I mean, I will say, I think a lot of it does. It sounds bad. It goes back to Indiana Jones. <laughs> Indiana Jones was like a big movie in my household. And yeah. that was like my first introduction to archaeology because, you know, I, my family was not like an outdoorsy family. Like, I think the first artifact I probably found like in the field was like, yeah, it feels cool. Like, I never found arrowheads when I was a kid or anything like that. I always wanted to. Like, I wanted, it was something I wanted to do, but it was just not, that was, you know, we did museums and some archaeology trips. My mom somehow found a way to take like, found calico hills one time and i my mom used to make us keep journals in the summer to try to like keep her education up she sent me them when they were cleaning out their house or cleaning out my room and i opened the front page of it and it was like today i went to an archaeology site called calico hills and i was like oh that was where that was (laughs) 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 now that's kind of infamous but (laughs) yeah so from a young age did you ever visit uh la brea because you're from california you're from socal uh, yeah, I'm from like Southern California, Orange County. Yeah, we went to the Le- Brea Tar Pits, which I loved. And I went back a few years ago and it's still just awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have like active, still have the active excavations going on. And I think that has got to be the most miserable thing to dig in. Yeah. Like active mm-hmm. active tar and trying to point plot and or <laughs> sludge your way through that crap. While tourists are staring at you. They have like these big boxes of like concreted boss like well paleontological remains that they like have pulled out and people like excavate through the boxes it's pretty crazy the more recent stuff not for me not for me (laughs) but clearly those experiences in california and you went to uc davis right for undergrad i I did i went to uc davis and happened into an a 
great anthropology program that really continued my interest in the field and gave me some early research experience, which really kind of continued to prompt me to go to continue on and get a master's and eventually a PhD because I realized I really enjoyed that part of the field itself. Absolutely. And UC Davis definitely made better by the uh, piercing blue eyes man, Randy Haas, who we mentioned in the last episode. Uh, <laughs> and that actually, that, that introduces to us a great segue. So you did four years of undergraduate. And what was that push for you to go into graduate school and get more professional academic training in the field of anthropology? I had always kind of been interested in teaching and I thought it was something that I would really enjoy and becoming a professor. Uh, and that was why I really first started looking into going into grad school. And originally, I was planning on going straight through. And so in my senior year, I just got kind of overwhelmed. It was like, you know, I think I should take a step back and get some more experience. So I worked for the Forest Service for six months and then worked at a CRM firm uh, out of California for uh, six months and kind of a year to work in the field. And, that, and then ended up going to Wyoming. But it really was originally driven by an interest in teaching and also the experience that I gained with doing a little bit of research at Davis really kind of furthered that because it was like, oh, I enjoy this part. I think I can do this part. What was the research? Uh, I ran some stable isotope analysis with uh, oh. Yelmer Irvins there. Yep. No and big it actually, deal. <laughs> uh, it actually uh, turned into my first publication, which I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And he, he was a wonderful mentor there and really, really helped me get my foot in the door and you know, get the wheels going on research and kind of down that academic trend, which is nice. Huh. Random interjection. Uh, I, our company uses, um, I think we use him as our isotope person and our uh, for all our shell analysis, I think we send to him, which is like super, super random. But I, yeah, the name, Jelmer, you can't really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. I mean, he's a he's a fantastic archaeometrist and really has done a lot with isotopes and has some um, pretty amazing stuff going on out there. So, can you define archaeometrist for the layman's, including me? I mean, archaeometry is like kind of uh, I, I don't know if this is the official definition. You know, kind of the hard science side of right. archaeology, and it often includes people who do things with you know small elemental analysis, really hardcore isotopic analysis, sourcing of materials, et cetera, all of that stuff that uses kind of those kind of chemistry heavy, hard science techniques and puts them in the archaeology realm. The nerd stuff that Eric does. Yeah. Some of the, yeah. yeah some of the nerd stuff that Eric does <laughs> and others. That was the first class I took from Eric was archaeometry. And yep. My first and only class I took from Eric. <laughs> 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 Ooh, that class is brutal. All right. So what programs were you looking into for graduate school and what ultimately led you to uh, end up in Laredice? I knew when I was at Davis that I wanted to do North American hunter-gatherer archaeology uh, influenced by Dr. Irkins and Dr. Bettinger who were there. So I started looking at hunter-gatherer programs uh, and I actually had a conversation with both of them about what schools to look into and Dr. Bettinger was the one who was like, you, you need to call Bob Kelly. You need to think about Wyoming and call Bob Kelly. So I was also looking at uh, University of Oregon and Santa Barbara and University of Utah as well. I think that those were the schools I ended up applying to. I had a few others on the list. And so I ended up having some conversations with you know, professors at a lot of those different schools and talked to Bob and actually ended up coming out to Laramie for a visit uh, and met with a number of the faculty and 
you know, it was really Bob that prompted my application to the department, but I also was really interested in a lot of stuff that Todd Servo was doing there uh, and had a really good kind of interview with him when I was visiting Laramie and ended up getting into the program and felt like it was the right place. And that was, that was how I ended up at UW. So were nice. you a, a BOD student or a TOB student? I was a TOB student. So I did, my main advisor <laughs> was Todd. Uh, and then Bob, like, but my, my chair was Todd. Uh, Bob was on the committee and was very influential. But then I did a postdoc for two years with Bob. So I kind of, Todd is my chair, but I worked with both of them pretty closely for all my years there. That was, I think, my, me and Con- no, Bob was yours, Connor, right? Yeah. Okay. I guess I was. He, he won't. He won't. He won't claim me, but he was. Is <laughs> <laughs> that so? A Todd means that Todd's your advisor, but Bob's also your advisor. Yeah. Yeah. It's the one A one B. It's like the one A one B scenario. But okay. uh, yeah. And there were. I mean, there were times where Bob would like. I think at least once Bob was like. Am I your advisor? I was like, no. and he was like, okay. And I was like, all right. <laughs> What's your thesis again, David? Bob, uh, uh, I don't know. So it's okay, uh, Doctor Serval asked me if I passed passed my <laughs> thesis like a month ago, so that was cool. <laughs> was he on the committee? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was there when he defended. He, was, uh, he signed <laughs> off on it. <laughs> like, did you graduate yet? Yes, oh, yes, I did. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Four years ago, dude. <laughs> Bob and Todd's excellent adventure is always entertaining. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Laprell, we'll get to that later. It's a mammoth site that Maddie helps co-run or run this year. I don't remember exactly. Strider just walked in the room. Do you recall oh, when God. he peed in your backpack? I do. On your I favorite final? Okay. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I <laughs> I, I just, it was just impressive that it was like my backpack was left open next to the trailer and started just being straight into it. <laughs> he was already getting on my nerves because he was just, he wouldn't eat his food. So he was just hungry and being a jerk to everybody. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to take you home. And then he just, pe- you were like, hey, David, Strider just peed in my back. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and I took him back to Larry. Did he spray like simple green all over the outside of my backpack in an attempt to make it look like to clean it or something to it? I don't recall that, but it is not out of the realm of possibility of ridiculous things that I would have done in the moment. <laughs> so I felt, you felt, I mean, I knew you felt awful and I was like, it's fine. Like stuff happens. I mean, it was, thank you for washing my floor. You were like, I guess I'll just go wash it in the creek. And I was like, <laughs> I just felt so bad. Uh, yeah, it, it was a good time. Right, bud? He's licking his foot right now. I don't care. That's a, I think that's an interesting like aspect of that site is there's always a pack of dogs, like no matter what. And I guess right. we'll, we'll talk more about it later, but yeah. dog friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we talked about why you went to grad school, I guess. Here's the thing. We always talk about Laramie on the podcast. What was it like going from California to, to Wyoming for you? You know, I really loved it. Yeah. I, I So when I worked for the Forest Service right after undergrad, I lived in Tonopah, Nevada for six months, which the archaeology was wonderful. My coworkers mm. were great. I really loved the job. But Tonopah is like a town of a few thousand people that doesn't have a stoplight. And it's mm. halfway between Reno and Vegas. And... Laramie was like way easier to live in than Tonopah. Yeah, <laughs> it was like more than one grocery store and like a Walmart, and it was you know Almanzas. an hour from Colorado. Yeah, it was Mexican food. <laughs> so I I really loved Laramie, and the more the longer I lived in Laramie, the more I loved it. Yeah, 
So it's been really weird. I, so I've been in Utah now for like 10 or 12 days, and it's very odd to like be in a larger city again. Right. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's not bad. It's just weird after being in Laramie for nine years. There's a Chipotle here? What? <laughs> yeah, I've been to Chipotle in and out. I've, oh yeah! Oh. Every time I drive through there, every time I drive through there, I absolutely. We have three in and outs in Denver now, and I had no idea. Yeah, I went to one for lunch yesterday. <laughs> hey, on, on that note, we got two tickets to Laradice, so we're gonna end this. I thought you were gonna be out of here doing in and out. Segment. All right, we'll be right back. And welcome back to episode 71 of Life Rooms Podcast. We are still here with Dr. Maddie Mackey talking about her thesis and dissertation work that she conducted over at uh, good old University of Wyoming. Go, go Cowboys. So, you know, for those of you who've been listening to the show, we've had a number of people on that have talked about their masters. And, and especially at Wyoming, the whole goal is like, get the hell out in two years. And especially, Maddie, you were master's PhD track. So there was that firm... You got 24 months. Two years. You got to, this needs to be done. So how did you get introduced into the topic of hand sprays? And uh, what what was your research question? So when I, I will say this, and I think this is a nice thing to note. When I applied for UW, I, I wrote some research idea in my cover letter. I could not tell you what that was today. And I mm. think I dropped it within the first week. <laughs> so all you As grad students, are, yeah, all your grad students and prospective grad students know that, you know, stuff can change once you start a program. And that's, if not normal, it's uh, pretty common. So it's, don't freak out if that happens. Read what the professors do on their research page on the website and then make a research question that is very catering to that and get yourself in the program, then change. (laughs) (laughs) So, but how I ended up with my master's thesis was one thing that I became interested in really early on when I was at UW was how children or, you know, yeah, children tended to be under-recognized or not discussed in the archaeological record. So I was kind of trying to find a way to approach that. And I remember I was having a conversation with my eventual advisor, Todd Surabell, and was saying I was really interested in kids in archaeology. You know, and I, at the time, had been doing uh, some projects on, well, I'd been doing like a term paper for a class on like toy points. But like one of the shortfalls of, of that approach is like, if you just essentially make a line and you're like, tiny artifact equals child which is not necessarily <laughs> true a lot of the time. He mentioned, he said, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be working on a site that has a bunch of hand sprays on it. Uh, maybe that's a way you could directly identify kids. So essentially, the idea behind this was that, you know, kids' hands are smaller, but it's biologically related. So we could maybe use this rock art site to look and see what portions of the populations were making it. Uh, and that was how I really started the project. And it was inspired by some of the work that Dale Guthrie had done in Europe in the Paleolithic, where he kind of came to the conclusion that a lot of the hand imagery that was made over there was done by like adolescent boys adventuring in caves. So it was kind of bringing that over to North America. And I will note there's a, there's ch- child children in archaeology is like a way bigger topic even now than it even was then. And there were a lot of people who were starting a lot of really cool research then. And I know you guys have talked about it. Mackenzie Corey, uh, actually, yeah. uh, as that's his dissertation deals some of that. So how are we like, what age group are we defining as kids? Because like when I was 10 years old, I already had larger hands and feet and taller than my poor mother. Yeah. So that was one of the challenges was like, what, at what point, how close can we get on age? And the way, the way I worked on this, so a hand spray, uh, I'm sure many of you guys have seen hand prints in rock art where essentially you put paint on your hand and then put it on a wall and you have a print. 
And a spray is kind of the negative of that. So you put your hand on the wall and then you spit or spray paint around it. And it creates like a negative hand image. Yeah, David has some tattoos of them that are really cool now. <laughs> and uh, Not to mention the cave wall right behind him, which has a bunch of hand sprays on those that's two. True. <laughs> and so did his house in Laramie. <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the way I approached this was I actually created my own experimental hand spray set. So I went and got finger paint from Walmart and watered it down and put it in spray bottles and essentially recruited a bunch of college students and then also went to one of the elementary schools in Laramie and made this set of like 250 hand sprays that covered a range of different ages and then had both uh, males and females as well and tracked how old everybody was when they gave their hand spray and used that to take measurements on everything and then figure out where that line was that we could identify using those measurements. I didn't so, know I was that involved. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I, I remember I like put out flyers and convinced everybody in the intro classes to give extra credit and would just have like students come by and would spray their hands. So an integral part of my master's thesis was finger paint, which is great. And what I, I figured out is you can essentially pretty confidently with like a certain degree of confidence, confidence, you can figure out if a hand spray is from an, a kid under the age of 12 or over the age of 12. So what I did for the actual thesis was figure out if everybody was um, under the age of 12 or was an adolescent adult, so 12 or older, which, you know, if you think about like how gross for it's during adolescence, that right. makes sense that that would be the cutoff for age. So you just measured like the metrics of the, or did you measure their hands when they came to you or did you just know what their age was and just get a good idea with the just function analysis or something? Yeah, I I, uh, I took I took everybody's age down exactly to the day when they came in, uh, and then essentially I created there was about eighteen different measurements that I tried that include like finger widths and lengths, palm area, all of these different yeah. measurements, and then put them in a um, discriminant function analysis to come up with equations to figure out what these were. Let's write a post on that. That's awesome. Yeah, um, we can totally write a post on that. that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So, and then, and then moving off from there, you used an archaeology site as like a test case to kind of connect them. You didn't go and measure every single hand on this site. How did you end up measuring? And, and if you don't mind mentioning where the site is in general. Yeah. So the site is a whole wall rocker site and it's located right outside. Well, it's a series of sites located right outside uh, Casey, Wyoming, which is a little town north of Casper. Uh, in Johnson County in Wyoming. And the landowners were generous enough to let us come out there. What we actually used to measure all the hand, well, what I actually used to measure all the hand sprays with help of some really well-known BLM archaeologists and photogrammetrists was photogrammetry. So essentially this idea that you take a bunch of photos and you can then stitch them together into a 3D model that's accurate, well well below sub-centimeter if you do it right. And you could actually measure the, hands, the hand sprays off of that get exact measurements on them. And that was really useful because a lot of this site has, it's three different sites that actually just got, were are, are up for the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, they just had a nomination written for them by Amanda Castaneda out of the Wyoming SHPO office. And it's a pretty spectacular site because handsprays are pretty unusual in Wyoming and in the, themselves. And there's about, there's over 70 handsprays of the site. And some of them are on surfaces that aren't accessible anymore. Wow. You know, rock stalls have come off or, you know, they, there could have been prehistoric uses of ladders or the sediment that made them more accessible has gone away. Yeah. So we took them all and measured with photogrammetry and then kind of applied 
the equation for age I had come up with. Uh, I also made a second equation to try to figure out if the handsprays were made by males or females, looking at kind of hand shape. So essentially, the idea is that women have smaller hands and also have more slender hands in general, like they have less fat fingers than males. (laughs) 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 So and there's also some research out there about digit ratios. So essentially, your the ratio between your index and your ring finger trends different between the different biological sexes. Uh, Although that didn't end up being the best indicator in a lot of the stuff I worked on. That's super cool. Excellent. And so I think we're going to transition here to talk more about Laprell and mammoths. But if you are interested in uh, Maddie's research, you can look up her article, Estimating Age and Sex, Paleo Demographic Identification Using Rock Art Hand Sprays and Application in Johnson County, Wyoming in the Journal of Archaeological Sciences, your 2015 pages 33 to 341. So that will be in the description below on the episode, wherever you're listening to it. So, David, over to you. Let's talk mammoths. I got one second. I'm dying. So when I found out about Wyoming as a program, my professor, Dr. Anderson at UT Knoxville was like, Hey, you should check out. Well, we had to read Bob's book as our hunter gatherer textbook. And then he like showed us like these different field schools we could take. And there was this one in Wyoming where there was like a mammoth in some riverbed. And I was like, okay, so go go there. (laughs) And then, uh, ended up, Wanting to go to Wyoming for that reason and for Bob, and I went, and I finally got to go to Laprell. Was it in 2016? I think it was 2015 or 16. I can't remember. Was it Oker Senior? Yes. 16. 16. Okay. Right. Because we listened to like a lot of political speeches on the radio that year. Yeah. So that site is awesome. I can kind of describe it, but I'll let you describe it because this is like what I guess Wyoming is known for right now and like it's Nat Geo funded and or was. Yeah. Well it was it was Nat Geo funded and we currently are funded by the National Science Foundation. And we've also cool. been funded in the past by the Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund and right. Quest and Prison Institute and you know, et cetera. I, I guess let me ask first, what happened to the mammoth and like how old is this? So Laprell is 12,950 is our current age estimate years old. So we're talking just under 13,000 years old. And what the site includes is there is the remains of the partial remains of a Colombian mammoth. It was a sub-adult, but it was like a nearly full-grown mammoth, you know, famous grow for a long time because they have pretty long lifespans. Mm -hmm. And what we found since we started working on the site in 2014 is the camp that's kind of associated with this mammoth. So we actually have these mammoth remains that were mostly excavated in the 1980s when the site was originally discovered. Uh, and then it was tested by George Frizen and a crew from University of Wyoming. And they, they thought that it might be a mammoth kill or butchery site at that time. Uh, and we were able to return in 2014 and kind of answer those questions on if the site was culturally associated or not. And we've, in the last six or seven seasons, uh, we've definitely confirmed that it's culturally associated and that we actually have the camp that was occupied for probably a pretty short time span, you know, a few weeks, maybe a month or two on the high end, uh, where people lived while they were butchering the mammoth, you know, preserving meat or eating meat or whatever activities they were doing. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing, particularly for that one, because the camp is really close. It's within about 10 to 12 meters of the actual mammoth range, which is much closer than a lot of people a lot of us were imagining it would be mm-hmm. um, because, you know, it's a giant dead animal. And the assumption is always be kind of camp away from that 
for smell or predators or variety of reasons. But in this case, uh, they're camped much closer. We do have some ethnographic accounts of modern hunter-gatherer groups hunting elephants that they also camp quite close. And the only other camp that's ever been definitely excavated and found with them, with associated with Clovis, a Clovis mammoth is the Murray Spring site in Arizona. We know that camp was occupied when they were hunting bison on that site because there's a refit to the bison kill area on that site because that site also has oh, wow. bison kills at it. But the assumption is it was probably used multiple times because the kill portion of that site was used multiple times as well. So what I was told when I got there by uh, Dr. Rich Adams was, I think it was the year before I got there, they're building steps, I think, right? And he found like that. Do you want to tell that story and the, the chopper? Yeah. So basically when we showed up on site for the first time in 2014, by the way, I should say, I am not the only person involved on this site. This is a, there's a big group of Koki eyes on it. It's myself and Todd Surival uh, and Bob Kelly at UW. Uh, Spencer Pelton also, who was at UW when he started there and is now the Wyoming State Archaeologist. You guys have talked to him multiple times on here. Uh, and then Matt O'Brien, who is at Cal State Chico, are all kind of, we're all Kofi eyes on the site. So when we went out in 2014, and nobody had been on site since 1987, we found the original 1987 excavation block. We actually found their corner nails. And we're just kind of planning on excavating around that. Because, you know, archaeologists dig where they think stuff is. Right. And we're like, well, they found a mammoth, so there must be more. <laughs> and all of us were like, we're going to find like mammoth heads and tusks. And we found like not. Yeah. <laughs> we found a couple pieces of mammoth and a few flakes and that was it but we were building a rich adams who's a lovely wyoming archaeologist who worked for the office of the wyoming state archaeologist for many years was um building a path to the water screens and hit this big chopper cobble tool um just by chance and immediately recognized that it was out of place and a potential artifact but it was like 10 meters from the mammoth a place we never imagined the site extended and the next year we came back and tested it and we found a bunch of artifacts over there and a bunch, you know, the beginning of an ochre scene. And then we went back the next year and started realizing that we needed to test much further from anywhere we had found artifacts. And that trend is absolutely continued. We have yet wow. to find where the artifacts stop in most portions of this site because it's just every time you put in a test unit, it comes up with a few artifacts. Most of the time, just little flakes, but... Still. Sometimes something else. That's going to be yeah. like non-flashbacks to when Chris Rowe found that damn point at Hell Gap. And then me and Spencer dug that really cruddy shovel test and over 800 artifacts popped out of that thing. And never forget, yeah, yeah. Man, I think something's here. And then just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess along the lines of points, you, you guys had an American Antiquity article come out this past year. Um, yes, talking about the point you found there or like the, the cultural association there. And you want to talk about the point? Yeah. So we, you know, our first primary question when we went out to the site was, is this culturally associated? Is this a case where humans killed or at least butchered a mammoth? And when we found that first activity area, which we call the, the chopper block, which we think had a heart. So, you know, a small fire in the center of it. And we started testing out around, we realized we had the opportunity to do a lot more. So we continued our testing. I think, David, you were there the day we found the point, right? Uh, yeah, and Connor was as well. Yeah, Connor's <laughs> over there. No, no, Connor <laughs> just left for like 20 minutes. Uh, so basically, <laughs> what happened was we found this like big ochre sand and chopper, and there was bone needles and a bone bead all this one area. So we were, we were putting test units in at like five meter pacing away from that area. And to put in tests at the site, you have to dig a trench because the archaeological deposit is like 
nine feet below moderate ground surface. So it's not just as simple as just like plopping in a unit. You have to like yeah. plan. So we had put in this trench and we could we had could fit like fit a fifty by one meter, so a half test unit in it. And I'll be darned if that wasn't where the projectile point came out. <laughs> um, I remember 20, it distinctly, too. 20 feet away from the mammoth. And David was there, and Connor had been digging in the test unit the day previously. And what was it? It was like 2.30. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you, you know, like, very close to closing time. And he was like, oh, I'll just do a water screen instead of digging this last quad. And that quad had a close point. Yeah. <laughs> that- <laughs> I remember calling you too. And I was like, I walked up to where I could get signal and I was like, Hey dude, heads up. (laughs) The coolest thing. And I guess we can end after this, but like when people ask like, what's your favorite thing like you found in archeology span or like, not what I found, but like, you know, coolest experience, I guess. Like I'll always talk about that day when like we were digging and it's like really hot in the sun. And I think I was wearing like a turban or something. And I like, no, I wasn't that day, but I was wearing the American flag pants. Doesn't matter. You like screamed Clovis point and like all of us in the main units were like, what was that? It's like someone's like ah, in the background. <laughs> and then we were like, what is that? And then I think Ken was like, she just said Clovis point. <laughs> and we all just like ran off to go see. And it was awesome. And there's like, yeah, I, it was cool. It was a fun day on site. And I, I will say, and I should, I should say this before we close out, you know, this site, Dr. George Grison was the one who tested the site in 1987. And he was, always thought that it was a kill or butchery site and it was a awesome experience when we found that point like 30 years later almost about 30 years later after and you know we we knew it was culturally associated at that time but mm. it was just a nice confirmation and getting to like you know i think rich called him and he showed up on site and got to see it and he was beaming ear to ear and it was a wonderful mm. experience and he was always great about letting us onto that site and wanted us working on the site. And it was, it was really amazing. Awesome. And on that note, rest in peace, George Frizen. Thank you for all you did for Wyoming archaeology. Um, we will rest catch in peace you. The juvenile mammoth too. We forgot yeah. about it. Yeah. You got rocked. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> rest in peace. My dignity because I was so close to a Clovis point. <laughs> we'll catch you in the third segment of episode 71. And welcome back to episode 71 of Love Fruits Podcast. We're here with Maddie Mackey. So Maddie, in the beginning, we kind of let Connor and David talk about how they met you and fun experiences. I didn't get to work at LaPrell. My, I remember meeting you and Chris Rowe was giving me a tour of the place. I met you, Laura Cannon and Chris Rowe in the computer lab and Melissa Murphy <laughs> came by and said, did you guys know we're getting a Pawnee Indian? And I was just like, yep, never forget that one. Then I think one of my favorite excavation seasons of all time was the first pre-field school excavation at Alm Rock Shelter. And I I miss that place so much. I specifically miss that summer because, and I mentioned this before when you had Spencer on, I was like the dumbest person in terms of education there because I was the only one that didn't have a master's degree. And it's like, you... I don't, I don't think anybody dealt was there. I disagree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, I was, it was interesting. I don't know. That was just a cool experience and you did an amazing job there. And like through my entire tenure at Wyoming, you were definitely someone that I looked up to and for someone I can get advice from in a meaningful way to help uh, kind of guide where I should go. And like we said in the interim, like you were the reason, the per- person that pushed me to work with Marcel and Mary Lou at Hellgap and uh, really kind of hey, gave me, me some... Me well. me yeah. Well. 
gave me some straight advice as to how not only to conduct myself, but how to be a successful academic that I think. And, and that's not as common as I think it should be. And there's only a a, a few people I can, I can point to from Wyoming that can say that person definitely made my career better and made me a better archeologist. And you're, and you're easily, easily one of them, those people. I would agree with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's like really great to see how successful you become and really excited for your, your new beginnings at Weber state. And we know you're going to do absolutely uh, phenomenal there. And so, yeah, like I said, we're very excited for you and really happy that you decided to be on the podcast. And uh, um, now begins the roast. So, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up, yeah. so oh, I can roast back. <laughs> yeah. you, have, you have dirt on all of us. Yeah. So that's, that's the yeah. truth. Yeah. And, and like kind of even going back, like I remember one of the first talks I saw as being in the essays as a grad student was in Vancouver and your auditorium when you were talking about Laprell. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's just been, it's just been phenomenal. And so upon graduation, cause your dissertation was on, uh, Laprell, what was that process like of going from finishing your dissertation to now being on the job market also in a, in a, in a pretty bad time before COVID and then like absolutely horrendous because of, of COVID. So would you mind kind of going into that whole experience of, all right, now how do I make the past 10 years of my life? worth all the debt (laughs) i mean yeah i would say it's quite often terrifying on the job market it's hard i i i will say i was very lucky in the fact that i had a lot of colleagues at university of wyoming and close friends who i watched go through the job market starting pretty early in my time there particularly heather rockwell but also includes other graduates like nathaniel kitchell and kevin malloy And so I I kind of knew what I was in for and had had a lot of conversations with them about what they wish they had done when they were towards the end of their PhD, how I could try to set myself up well. Because the job market, particularly the academic job market, is really, like, it's terrible to say this, it's kind of a crapshoot. Like, there's there's a little bit of luck to it. The right position has to come up at the right time, and you have to position yourself well enough to be noticed. But everybody, by the time you get to any long or short, particularly short list in an academic job, everybody is qualified. Everybody is a good fit. And it comes down to intangibles that you can't control, but it still feels very personal. Um, Because, you know, if you go and interview somewhere in person and you don't get a job, it sucks. Um, And I've I've had that happen. So for myself, I think one thing that I did that was really beneficial for me was I started applying for jobs in my last year of my PhD. So I graduated in spring of 2019. And I started applying really early in the fall of 2018. And mostly I did it like A, DDS trying to get a job, but B, like the job documents that you turn in when you apply for an academic job, like take some practice. And no matter how many like times you write them, it takes a lot of times before you start feeling confident in what you're writing. And like, I look back at some of my previous applications and cringe. So I'm like, oh, this is not what I was going for. And I I gave them to a lot of people to look at, which helped a lot as well. So I applied for jobs the year that I defended and then the two years through my postdoc. And the market was never good, but definitely when the pandemic hit this, the pandemic hit spring of 2020, uh, I was in some job searches that got canceled, including a search that was on, I was on a shortlist for and had done an in-person interview and the position got halted 
And then a number of other jobs I had done, like long list interviews for and, you know, got halted. And then fall of 2020, the market was like bad. You know, there were not many jobs advertised in fall of 2020. And I just, Weaver happened to be filling for retirement and right place, right time. And I, I, I fulfilled what their advertisement said they were looking for. And they stuck to what that advertisement said, which also just comes out in these scenarios. It, yeah, it's like, it's a sea of like complications, like to do all this stuff. Yeah. And I, I, the other thing that really helped me was I had a lot of contingency plans. I was starting to run out of them, Yeah, <laughs> but I, I had plans and I had backups and I, I always, you know, six months to a year ahead, I'd be like, okay, if I don't get something this round, like this time, this is what I'm going to do. This is option one. This is what I really want. This is option two, you know, and I would have like a, a list of stuff. And I, one thing I do wish I had done during my PhD is diversified some of my training a little bit. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish I had gotten a lot more or done more cur curatorial experience because that is definitely uh, a job market that is, seems to be on the rise and are very important positions. So something to consider. Uh, and then I also was looking at some alt academic options as well. I mean, as an archaeologist, CRM is always an option, which is something I was looking at. But I also was playing around with data visualization and data science and some other kind of lesser gone avenues as well. Yeah, the market's tough. I was so stoked you got into Weaver because I know I texted you this. My dad played football for him back when they were yeah. still using leather helmets because he's old as hell. Not that old. Yeah, I think they had plastic ones at that point. But anyways, like a lot of my family goes there and you, you've met him. My cousin's kid, we just call him my nephew, um, you know, for brevity's sake. But he's in a, in a uh, what it, it, is it an advanced high school program? Anyways, his senior year, which will be next year, he'll be able to take classes at Weber. And since working at Hellgap and working at Lynch, he's dead set on becoming an archaeologist. And so when I told him, uh, you met him briefly. Yeah. That you were there. And then I was like, you should definitely take classes under Dr. Mackey. And he's like on it. So that's a next year thing. So it was really cool because that was like seeing, I just knew Weber. And I was really stoked to have uh, a colleague and a friend teach there and like a part of a part of that state that I, that's really close to me. Yeah. And I mean, it's a it's a great location. I will say I I mean, obviously, I've had I haven't even started teaching my first class yet, but I will in the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. But the community has been incredibly welcoming at Weaver. I'm really excited to start there. There's been a lot of really good work done in it's a sociology and anthropology department uh, and also the been a lot of good archaeological work that's been done here as well. And I'm like, I'm excited to continue on, hopefully continue and carry on that legacy. And they do see, they have a lot of programs like that for bringing, you know, bringing in high school students to get early college credit and some early experiences. And that's a really nice thing. They also kind of function as a community college for the greater Ogden area. In addition, there's a lot of associate's degrees that are offered, which is really kind of, that's awesome to see. Because uh, it, it allows people to come back to school who may not would have in the first place or go into school when they may not, that may not have been something they were willing to do at a full four-year institution as well. Um, so it's nice to see them trying to engage with the community. And they are definitely like, that is one of the priorities of the campus itself is to engage with the community more and more as years go on. You're going to try uh, trade in all that Wyoming gold for wildcat purple? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is, I, I there's a lot of purple on that campus <laughs> I, guess, I guess the gold didn't they don't purple they don't fully clash so you could do both i i'm pretty sure purple brown and gold are not great 
<laughs> yeah, I'm colorblind, so don't listen to me. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't listen to me. Okay, but. cool. <laughs> and, uh, kind of wrap, uh, rolling it back in. So, you did have a postdoc. You managed to stay at the University of Wyoming, uh, working under Bob Kelly for his NSF funded radiocarbon database, like CARD. Is it, what is the full title of that so NSF? It's thing? like, uh, Radio, or it's like creating a radiocarbon database for North America, populating. There we go. Populating a radiocarbon database for North America. So basically what happened for, I worked on the project on and off for a lot of my PhD as just, you know, an hourly fine radiocarbon dates employee. And it came to the end of my PhD studies and Eric Robinson, who many people who listen to this podcast should be familiar with that name, was stepping away as the postdoc who had been there for many years to take a different position, a different postdoc. Uh, and so they had an opening and Bob needed to fill it quickly. And I had the skill set that he was looking for and I had experience on the project. And so he talked to me about coming in and I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And we finagled some funding uh, to make it last a little bit longer. I did some teaching and things for the department as well to kind of boost, boost the funds a little bit. And we were able to finish it out. So we're hopefully going to announce it soon. And it is going up on CARD, the Canadian Archaeological Radiocarbon data set. Uh, so that's where it will be available. But it is um, it was fully funded by NSF. So Awesome. And, that's, and for folks who aren't super aware of this, what is postdocs are essentially jobs that are are created for people who just graduated as like a transitional phase kind of thing. Yeah. Right? So postdocs are definitely one of Bob's goals with including a postdoc on this project was to try to more normalize having postdocs in the US because they're very common in Europe, but they're pretty uncommon for archaeology. Sorry, very common for archaeology in Europe. Uh, and in the US, they're pretty uncommon, although they're very common in many other fields of studies. And essentially a postdoc is it's the job that you would take or, you know, right after you finish your PhD, post PhD, post doctoral. Uh, and normally they last, you know, one to a few years and they're normally research specific. So somebody will actually write a, a research design and write a grant and say, I want funding specifically for a postdoc. And this is the portion of that project that the postdoc will complete. So it allows students who are newly graduated to a kind of have some sort of transitional job. And it's also a great way to build extra skills. So a lot of times you'll see people take postdocs that are things that they are familiar with, that will slightly stretch kind of their methodological range. And it lets you get a little more training uh, while having some job security, even though it's, you know, they're not permanent positions. Uh, and it allows you a little more breathing room to continue on the job market. And like for me, the post, the way Bob had this postdoc set up, like he said, you know, part of this is also you doing some of your own research and I like you continuing to apply for jobs, et cetera. You know, this is what I want from you. This is when I want it. But don't neglect your publications and your research during this time as well. And we kind of had a breakdown and that's that, you know, hopefully that's how postdocs should work. It's, it's obviously advisor dependent, but that was a nice. And you're kind of thing. like a professional assistant to like the professor you're working with too. I always thought was kind of interesting about it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're somewhere between like, Faculty you're, you're, and like the, you it, you're like in a weird, it is kind of like a weird liminal zone because you're not mm. quite full faculty and you're still under the person who's advising you, but you definitely are not being treated necessarily. I mean, you shouldn't really be treated like a PhD student. 
Right. There's a lot more independence in it. And normally they hire someone who has some portion of the skill set they want. So, they, so it can kind of be a mutually beneficial relationship between the postdoc and the professor who has that postdoc. Yeah. So, and I, I definitely had applied for postdoc, some other postdocs. I was actively applying for some other postdocs even uh, when I when I ended up getting a faculty position for projects that were, you know, particularly for some radiocarbon projects that were going around because it was like, look, I can bring these skill sets. I've already done some of this. I know how to work with this type of data, uh, et cetera. So it's like, yeah. it's not just like immediately immediate graduates. It can be like a certain amount of years out. Yeah, no, you I can know. have, yeah, you can have a, you can have more than one postdoc. Like Eric had multiple postdocs. Uh, and there also are programs out there for write your own postdoc. So you can approach professors and say, hey, I want to write my own postdoc using funds from, you know, the National Science Foundation, SVE postdoc program. I'd like to come to your institution. This is what I'm thinking. This is why I'd like you to advise me. And those programs are out there. So there definitely are options to also write your own postdoc if this is something you're interested in doing. And some institutions have standing postdoc programs where, you know, they have fellows programs. They're basically postdocs that you can apply to them. Uh, and go to those institutions. They essentially house you for X amount of time while you do your research and support you in that institutional way they can. And in return, you put their institution on your research. Excellent. Well, Dr. Mackey, before we end the show, you know, what are a couple sources, You know, these could be books, articles, Sapiens posts, who cares, that you would recommend for anyone interested in you know, the breadth of, it doesn't have to be the breadth of everything, but especially big game hunting, hand sprays, or even just tools that helped you write your dissertation or develop skills to apply to a full-time big girl job. I'm pretty sure you're obligated to say the fifth beginning or, or I, was, I was just going to say, I mean, <laughs> a great introduction is either the fifth beginning or foraging spectrum. They are very useful. They're very approachable. I definitely use them in my classes. Uh, Bob, we want our royalties because this is like the 30th <laughs> I time. I know. It's so hard not to. <laughs> As far as big game hunting, we can also plug some some George Prison as well. He has some great texts out there on big game hunting. As far as the job market, etc., the professor is in is a, a commonly used book, and it does have some good, it has some harsh truths in it, uh, but it does have a lot of good advice. And I would also say make sure you use your peers, talk to people in your program who are about to enter the job market, talk to see if there's any alumni who would be interested in talking with you send your cover letter to people, et cetera. Like that can help a ton. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. And you'll be able to find those down below uh, in our episode description. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Or I guess now we have an active invitation for pumping your LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have a LinkedIn at the moment. (laughs) So on social media, probably the best place is my Instagram, which I believe is Madback. You can tell that I am roughly social media. It's like Mad Mac 9. Yep, Mad Mac 9. Uh, Instagram is probably the best place to see me, although I will fully admit it's mostly full of archaeological crafts because I <laughs> <laughs> crash it a lot. <laughs> so That leads me to a segue I wanted to say before, I guess before we end it. In, in the regards of like Carlton saying like you were like obviously a mentor to us, like I would always see Maddie as like, I am distracted. I'm at Vitavu camping and I'm drunk at the bar yesterday. Like what would Maddie be doing right now? And like <laughs> Maddie would be working. And then I'd be like, I'd ask you for your advice. And you're like, Oh dude, I'm knitting, watching forensic files. Like you're fine. <laughs> 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 so yeah. it's like a good balance, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh no, no, no. I, I craft like a lot. That's how I keep my sanity. Or procrastinate or whatever else. <laughs> Never heard that one. You're, you're crafty AF. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Because this is a life in ruins, we have to ask the corny question. If you had a chance to do it all over, would you dig in that crappy calcium carbonate <laughs> lapel dirt again? Love the site, hate the dirt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Maddie Mackey, now uh, assistant associate professor at uh, Weaver State. Yeah, associate professor at Weaver State assistant. University. <laughs> assistant, sorry. A <laughs> words. Um, uh, you can find her on Instagram at badmac9 for you to check out some great cross stitching. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast and provide us feedback. Uh, that'd be awesome. We got a couple of emails this week. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, we did. Just if, like send us a DM on Instagram, comment on the Instagram. Just you know, let us know you're alive. Thanks. And we know that we uh, have a lot of bro talk on here. You don't need to tell us. It's part of our charm. Uh, definitely buy merch. We still have that store up. You can find it on our website. Buy our stuff. It's awesome. And to be that, fair, as I'm doing now, I went on a very long tangent about Axe body spray. <laughs> on that note, let's end it. <laughs> yep. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So what would you give to a mammoth that is having an anxiety attack? Oh, no. I don't know. Tranquilizers. That is good. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> we broke Raddy. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.